BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet. With more than 2 million downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, and part of the Self-Help for Smart People podcast network. In this episode, we discuss several simple strategies for thinking better by looking at lessons ranging from sources as disparate as the methods of Sherlock Holmes to the principles of professional poker. How do you create focus and engagement when you're trying to solve a problem? What are the potential ways that you can improve your memory to supercharge your thinking ability? How can you train your mind to think more effectively about emotion, risk, and uncertainty? We discuss this and much more with our guest, Maria Konnikova. Do you need more time, time for work, time for thinking and reading, time for the people in your life, time to accomplish your goals? This was the number one problem our listeners outlined, and we created a new video guide that you can get completely for free when you sign up and join our email list. It's called How You Can Create Time for the Things That Really Matter in Life. You can get it completely for free when you sign up and join the email list at successpodcast.com. You're also going to get exclusive content that's only available to our email subscribers. We recently pre-released an episode and an interview to our email subscribers a week before it went live to our broader audience. And that had tremendous implications because there was a limited offer in there with only 50 available spots that got eaten up by the people who were on the email list first. With that same interview, we also offered an exclusive opportunity for people on our email list to engage one-on-one -on -one for over an hour with one of our guests in a live exclusive interview just for email subscribers. There's some amazing stuff that's available only to email subscribers that's only going on if you subscribe and sign up to the email list. You can do that by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're driving around right now, if you're out and about and you're on the go, you don't have time, just text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R -E to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we broke down the complex and confusing world of body language and nonverbal communication. We discovered the easiest starting point for learning the basics you need to know to get started with reading and understanding body language. And we dug into the specific tools and strategies you can start using right away to not only decode the body language of others, but also change your own body language to communicate what you want. We explored all of this and much more with our previous guest, Joe Navarro. If you've always wanted to learn about body language but feel overwhelmed by such a complex and confusing field, be sure to listen to that episode. Now for our interview with Maria. Today, we have another fascinating guest on the show, Maria Konnikova. Maria is the author of two New York Times bestsellers, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, and The Confidence Game. Maria graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University and received her PhD in psychology from Columbia. Her work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Scientific American, Wired, and much more. She's also an avid poker player. Maria, welcome to the Science of Success. 
Thanks for having me, Matt. Well, we're super excited to have you on the show today. As as longtime listeners will definitely know, I'm a big poker player as well. And so I definitely want to dig into some of that stuff. But before we do, I'd love to kind of start out with some of the other work that you've done. And, mm-hmm. and you know, especially the book Mastermind, I thought was really fascinating. You know, what kind of led you to decide to write a book about Sherlock Holmes? And are there some applications from kind of a, a fictional character that can actually lead us to better thinking and decision making? Yeah, those are both really great questions. The first one, especially because I'm not someone who was a lifelong Sherlockian. Um, but when I started writing the book, I realized there was this huge community of Sherlock Holmes fans, Sherlockians from all over the world who've just lived and breathed Sherlock Holmes for their whole life. And that wasn't me. I had been introduced to the stories as a child when my dad read them to me. Well, to our whole family, we had reading hour um, every Sunday before bed. It was really wonderful. And they really were beautiful. And I remember loving them as a child, but I had never reread them as an adult. So it was kind of a childhood experience, childhood memory and nothing more. And in this particular instance, I was working on a piece about mindfulness. And this was actually years before everyone knew what mindfulness was. So, you know, we're going back to like 2010, when this was not a buzzword and people, when you say mindfulness, were like, oh, doesn't that have something to do with Buddhism? That was basically the the end of it. So I was trying to figure out, okay, you know, I want to write about mindfulness and cognitive psychology. How do I do that in a way that people will relate to, that they'll understand what it is? Because whenever I'm writing, I always like to have stories, examples, things that bring scientific concepts to life. And as I was trying to figure out how to do this, I actually had a flashback to childhood, to my dad reading to us. Um, I remembered one particular scene, which was, I couldn't remember the story. I knew it was from Sherlock Holmes. Um, and it was about Holmes asking Watson how many steps lead up to 221B Baker Street and Watson not knowing. Um, luckily, you know, now we're living in a time of Google. So I was able to go online and just quickly Google, you know, steps to 221B Baker Street. And right away I had the story. And I reread it and I thought, oh, my God, this scene is actually my memory was really good um, in terms of just going to the right place. Because if you read the scene fully, um, it's not actually really about the number of steps. It's about this exchange that Holmes and Watson have at the end when Watson says, well, I don't really understand. You know, my eyes are just as good as yours. And Holmes says it's not about eyesight this is the difference between us. You only see, I both see and observe. And I was like, that, that, <laughs> that's mindfulness, both seeing and observing. And so I um, wrote up the piece and it ended up doing really well. And in the process, I also became, you know, really kind of fascinated with the Sherlock Holmes stories. I thought, huh, this is really interesting. I really enjoyed reading this. Let me start rereading them. Maybe, you know, I'm missing something. And so I started rereading them from the beginning and just within a few stories, I said, oh, my God, this is a gold mine. There are so many psychological concepts here. It's so well described. Um, Conan Doyle really knew what he was talking about when it came to the human mind. And that was the seed of the book. And that ended up becoming mastermind. And to get to the second part of your question, of course, Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character. But what people often don't realize is that, first of all, Arthur Conan Doyle was uh, medically trained. He was a doctor. He actually started the home stories because his practice wasn't going very well. And he was sitting by himself in uh, waiting for waiting for patients that never came. And so he started writing the home stories. And he was someone who was always very much into all of the scientific developments of the day. And um, he followed you know, everything that was happening in Germany. He knew he knew what was going on with the science. He was a follower of Sigmund Freud. And Holmes was actually based on a doctor. He was based on Arthur Conan Doyle's mentor at um, the University of Edinburgh. And J- Joseph Bell was the inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. And so we have here a fictional character who was created by someone with a deep scientific training based on a doctor. And so, yes, absolutely, we can apply him to real life because he came out of real life. What a great instance of kind of the power of subconscious incubation, right? You're sort of working on an article (laughs) and your subconscious just bubbles up this idea from, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And and suddenly that is exactly what you were looking for for that article. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the longest incubation period I've ever had. And it was, but it was, it was a really crazy moment because I, I just, I distinctly remember this. I was like, oh, you know, I remember it as a little kid, like that's what struck me. That particular story, it wasn't like a murder or, you know, some, some big moment when I was scared. It was this not knowing because I remember identifying with Watson and saying, oh my God, I don't know how many steps lead up to 221B Baker Street either. You know, I, I don't see and observe. I only see. And, you know, as a kid, you don't really get the depth of that message, but um, it definitely, it definitely stuck. And I have never, I think, seen subconscious incubation in action um, to the extent that I saw it then. So let's dig into some of the kind of lessons from studying Sherlock Holmes, what were some of the big findings or takeaways that you uncovered? Well, I think that the first one was the was actually the first one, literally. It was this theme of mindfulness, which ended up becoming the theme of the book, that the thing that distinguishes Holmes above any other detective is the fact that he is able to observe. He's present. He's in the moment. He really just focuses and takes in all of this information. And you know, one of the one of the things that you find when you actually read all of the stories and look at what Holmes does is how remarkably quiet he often is. I often make the joke that he's the most inactive active detective I've ever seen, because if you look at photographs, well, photographs, if you look at drawings that were done for the book, in basically every story you see him sitting in the chair with, you know, his his fingers steepled together, just sitting quietly or with a pipe or with his violin. And it really taught me the importance of taking those quiet moments, of taking a step back, of really making sure that you reflect before you act, before you jump into anything, and that you try to see the whole picture. Because I think we're living in a moment where we're really just primed for constant action. And whenever you take a step back and are like, you know, I just want to reflect on this for for a moment, um, people are like, oh, you're wasting time, you're not doing anything. And what Sherlock Holmes helped me rediscover was that actually doing nothing can be the most powerful thing that you can do. It can really unlock your mind. It can really force you to to focus and to take in so much more than you would if you were just constantly busy, busy, busy. And that's a lesson that I think I have to keep relearning because everything in society pushes against that, um, especially when it comes to, I think, the, the buzzword multitasking, which is kind of my my eternal enemy because one other thing that you learn from Holmes and something that I tried to kind of convey in the book was that you know first of all there's no such thing as multitasking our brains can't do two things at once so it's task switching and it's really exhausting and you don't actually end up doing anything as well but Holmes also this fictional character shows the importance of being able to resist distractions and just kind of to unitask, to really unitask well, and that that's one of your most powerful things when you can unleash your mind in that way. And once again, that's so hard to remember. Even right now, you know, you and I are doing this interview, and I've actually blacked out my computer screen because otherwise I have I don't know how many tabs open, and it's just so tempting to be like, ooh, you know, let's uh, let's look at Twitter and see what's happening. Let's let's look at this. Let's look at that. I actually remember when I was writing the book, I had to down. I downloaded the software because I was writing about it, um, freedom, which turns off your internet. And because I was writing about multitasking, I was like, oh, this is actually really interesting. Let me try it out. I don't actually need it. You get a free trial period. And then I think after 10 days or something, you have to pay for it. And I was like, oh, let me do the trial period. I'm not actually going to need it. And the first day I turned it on, you can actually put in any amount of time. I don't remember. It was like from 10 minutes to 10 hours, something like that, where you can't access the internet. And within two minutes when I was writing, I noticed my fingers going to the you know alt tab to actually <laughs> check my email. And I realized just how often I got distracted um, and I ended up buying the software and it was the best purchase I ever made. That's awesome. And you know, it's funny. I think mobile devices, obviously, which we don't need to go down that rabbit hole, but are another <laughs> massively addicting and distracting, you know, thing that we've talked a bunch about on the show. But but coming back to this idea of kind of the, how, you know, how sort of quiet and contemplative Sherlock Holmes is, you know, one of the kind of recurrent themes that that we've seen again and again on on Science of Success is this idea of 
uh, contemplative routines and how important it is to kind of step back from the constantly reactive nature of, you know, boom, 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 email this, that so many people making demands on your time and even spending, you know, 10, 15 minutes once a week or once a day to step back and say, what should I be doing? What should I be looking at? What should I be focusing on and how powerful that can be? Absolutely. Absolutely. And something that I started doing actually after writing this book was um, meditating every morning for not for long for like 10 minutes. And it's absolutely huge. It's, it's a game changer in terms of your clarity of thought of your ability to concentrate, to make decisions. It's just, it really helps you harness your brain power for the rest of the day. And I think that people who've never done it can't quite appreciate. They think that it's total bullshit until they try it because it sounds so crazy that 10 minutes a day can actually make such a big difference. But, you know, recapturing that quiet space in your mind can be so powerful. And I think that it's something that at every single level people are forgetting to do. I wrote a piece a number of years ago about boredom. There was some really interesting research being done on what boredom actually is and the fact that people are more bored now than they have been in the past, even though it seems like you should never be bored, right? Because there's always something going on. Well, it ends up that boredom isn't that there's nothing to do. It's that you're not actually, your attention isn't engaging with any one thing. So the more distractions there are around, the more you have your phone, the more you're not forced to actually make choices, concentrate, do one thing, the less able you become to pay attention and the more easily bored you become because your attention doesn't engage with things in a meaningful way. And I found that both fascinating and frightening. You know, I was just reading or just finished reading actually the book Mastery by Robert Greene. And one of the most interesting kind of takeaways, I don't know if you've read it or not, but that he talks about in that book is this idea that to achieve mastery, it's about kind of a deep encoding of of whatever you're mastering into the mind and into the subconscious. And the only way that that kind of deep encoding work really happens is through, you know, focused attention over long periods of time and long stretches of time, so, you know, like years and years of focused attention. Mm-hmm. And when we're constantly distracted, that, that encoding like never happens. And so we never end up building the sort of muscle memory and the subconscious processing power to really get towards mastery. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I haven't read the book, but I think that point is a, a very good one. And I think it's true, not just of mastery, but you know, let's even, let's even go take it down a notch, even if we're not trying to master, but just trying to do anything, learn anything, absorb anything in the short term. Um, I think it's very easy to forget just how important engaging with it can be because if you just think back, this is, I think, an experience that everyone has had. Like think back to school, right? To like elementary school or middle school or high school. What do you actually remember from that? You remember the classes in which you were engaged, in which you like the teacher, in which, you know, some book or some concept really spoke to you and you don't remember anything else. Now, you might have been a straight A student and you did well in the moment, but your brain didn't retain it because you weren't really engaging with it. It was a much more surface process, but you'd be surprised at how much you actually remember from 10, 20, years ago, just because you were engaged at the moment that you were learning it, and that you actually played with the material, you were interested in the material. And actually bringing this back to Sherlock Holmes, one of the things that I think distinguishes him from a lot of other fictional characters, um, and I think is a key reason why he's able to be so successful, is that he loves what he does. He has fun. So the common refrain, one of the most famous quotes from the book is, the game is afoot. Um, And that's something that Sherlock Holmes says repeatedly about his cases. The game is afoot. So, you know, it's it's a game. It's engaging. It's interesting. And that's one of the reasons that he's able to do well and to keep learning and to succeed because he actually sees it in that light. And I think that's a very powerful mental thing that we can do is turn you know, turn things around so that they do become more game-like, more interesting, more challenging, so that we're actually excited and engaged as opposed to, oh God, I can't believe I have to do this, or I have to read this, or I have to look at that. You're going to have to do it anyway. You're going to have to invest the time anyway. So why not make it something more meaningful? So how do we think about kind of creating that engagement or creating that sense of 
playfulness when we're when we're working on something? I think that it's very specific to you and to what you're working on. And some things are obviously they lend itself they lend themselves to it much more easily. So if it's actually, you know, for your job and you enjoy your job, well then, then that should be pretty simple. If it's something that's mundane but for a greater you know why you're doing it, I think that's key. Then you can actually figure out ways to make it interesting and to actually psych yourself up about it because it might be a very boring mundane thing, but you're doing it in the cause of something much bigger, much more interesting, much more exciting. So you keep that thing in mind, you keep that ultimate goal in mind, you know why you're doing it. And you're like, okay, well, how can I reframe this so that it's no longer this boring thing, but now a piece of a much more interesting puzzle. Let me look at it as like one puzzle piece that's essential. Without this puzzle piece, I can't do this very interesting thing. So I think that there are lots of ways that you can reframe your approach, reframe your thought, reframe the task, reframe whatever it is to make it much more palatable. And I think a very important litmus test is if you can't do that, if it's actually like just absolutely impossible, you have no idea why you're doing it, you have no idea what you're doing, you don't like it, you don't see any purpose for it whatsoever, um, then you might want to rethink your job choices. And I think that ties in many ways kind of back to the concept of the idea of flow. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. I write, I actually, within, in Mastermind, wrote about flow because I think it's, it's a concept that really applies to mindfulness and to the ability to concentrate, to the ability to do something well. And it's a state that we can achieve in a lot of different ways. I'm sure all of your listeners know what flow is, but just as a, as a quick kind of refresher, it's that that feeling of being kind of at one and with your task. And uh, Mihaly, Chinsa Mihaly was the one who created that concept. And I actually recommend his books on it. If, if you haven't read them, um, he's, a, he's a very interesting writer and thinker. But it's just being kind of really focused on what you're doing to the point where it stops being separate from you. It becomes kind of this flow, this state of enjoyable activity. And we can achieve it in so many different ways, doing almost anything. I mean, there's some studies of people achieving flow, doing just the most mundane, really crazy stuff. It's not like you suddenly achieve it when you're, you know, when you're always, when you're doing something creative, like playing the violin or doing something like that. So it's, it's actually more of a place in your mind than it is integral to the activity as such, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And we have, for listeners who want to dig in, we had a great interview that came out a couple weeks ago with uh, Stephen Kotler from the Flow Genome Project that goes much deeper into that. But I want to come back to, you know, when we're talking about, I think, this idea of sort of task switching, multitasking, Mm -hmm. when we look at, you know, how focused attention really helps kind of build the right muscles for thinking more effectively and, and how engagement is a key piece of that. You know, I think this ties back in, in, in some ways, and you could probably elaborate on it much more intelligently than I can about this idea that you kind of called the brain attic mm-hmm. and, you know, how we sort of think about storing information and organizing knowledge in our heads. I'd love to dig into that concept and, and learn a little bit more about it. Yeah, absolutely. So I steal that concept directly from Arthur Conan Doyle. What Sherlock Holmes says in the books is that basically you carry this real estate with you always in your mind, your brain attic. Um, and it's his, it's his metaphor for memory. And he has this exchange with Watson because Watson always gets the short end of the deal in all of these exchanges. And he says, you know, Watson, there are multiple types of addicts. Um, yours is basically a lazy lumberjack's attic. You just put God knows what up there. Um, and obviously, I'm Sherlock Holmes. I have this wonderful, pristine attic. So what, what does that actually mean? Well, it goes back to what we've been talking about, um, this idea of, of mindfulness and a focus. So if you think about your memory as a place, just think of it, you know, imagine an empty room, an empty attic in a new house, and you can make a choice of how you're going to use that space. You can be someone who's really excited that you suddenly have an attic and you've never had an attic before. So now you never have to throw anything out. You can just throw it all up there um, and you're never going to run out of room. What ends up happening? Well, first of all, you can't find anything. Secondly, you do run out of room. Um, Thirdly, you run out of room faster than your next door neighbor who has the same attic but was using it more effectively because you haven't been optimizing how you store things. And it's just one big mess. And 
the files that you do have up there get all jumbled up and messed up. And even when you find something, it might be wrong. So that's actually kind of the default of how our memories are. If we don't think about it, that's the kind of attic we have because we just kind of remember things as they stick. We don't think about it and we don't necessarily put a lot of thought into how we're encoding them. What Sherlock Holmes is trying to tell Watson, and this is actually very close to our current understanding of memory. Now, the brain attic is flawed in the sense that memory is much more malleable. It's not actually kind of this hard enclosed space, but moving taking that to the side for a moment, let's imagine this is an expandable attic. So what Sherlock Holmes says is, well, you need to be very careful. You need to be mindful of every piece of information that goes up there because it's not infinite. And you not only have to be aware of what you're putting up there, but you have to be aware of where you're putting it. Because any information you remember is only going to be useful to you insofar as you can retrieve it. Because it doesn't really, you know, imagine yourself sitting in school taking a test and there's a question you say, oh, I knew that. I know that. Oh, God, I definitely studied that. Well, if you don't actually remember it at that moment, it's useless to you. You're going to get a zero for that question. And so and that's the essence of why you need to store things properly. You need to be able to retrieve them when you need them. Otherwise, they may as well not exist. So a few things about kind of what you can do to make your brain addict the most effective. Number one is encoding. So the moment that we have the most control over our memories and over how well they'll be stored is the moment of encoding, the moment where we first remember it. So some things will never get encoded because even though we experienced it, we didn't pay attention and it's actually not in our memories and we're not going to be able to retrieve it later on. And actually, oftentimes people get into a lot of trouble. There have been court cases with this where they're like, well, you were there. How can you not remember? You must be lying. Well, actually, no, they're not. They just weren't paying attention. They never encoded that memory. So they they were there, but they don't remember. And so you have to make sure, you have to make the conscious choice to say, okay, I want to remember this. Let's encode it into my mind. Now, how am I going to encode it? Well, you want to do it in a way that's most effective and space efficient. So our memories are strongest the more we can associate them with things that are already in our memories. So thematically, if it's related to some of the concepts we know, if we're with people with whom we share other memories, if we're in a space where we've shared other memories, if there are sounds, if there are smells, basically anything you can do to help encode that piece of information, use it and tag that memory as much as you can cross-tag it, cross-reference it, because every single one of those tags, every single point of encoding will later be a point of retrieval. So even if you get, if you forget three of the tags, as long as you remember one, you'll be totally fine and you'll be able to retrieve that memory. And so that's kind of, that's your efficient addict. That's the one where you actually care about everything that goes in and you care about how it goes in so that when the moment comes, you can take it out intact and use it. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire. 
because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. I love, I want to dig into a couple different pieces of this because I think this whole approach of kind of conceiving of your brain in that way and the idea that only things that we actually can remember and retrieve at the right time are sort of relevant or useful, I think that really kind of harkens back to the Charlie Munger kind of mental models approach to the world, (laughs) which I'm a huge fan of. And we talk all about, you know, on the show constantly is this idea that you have to kind of array knowledge in your brain around sort of useful semantic trees so that you can connect different pieces of information and understand the world more more cohesively. But, you know, it also comes back to and we've had a, a number of interviews where we talk about, you know, the power of visual memory and mnemonic techniques and all of these kind of strategies for encoding that are incredibly powerful and specifically, I'd love to dig into, you know, one of the things that that Sherlock Holmes talks about, and I know you kind of write about, which is how we can bring multiple kind of senses into the encoding process and how useful that can be. Absolutely. So I, I kind of started mentioning that when I was talking about encoding things into your brain attic, but we tend to really ignore most of our senses in, at any given moment. So when we're encoding a memory will encode that pri- the primary memory. So if we, for instance, want to f- remember what happened, we'll just use our eyes. Um, if we want to remember going to a concert, we're just going to use our ears. And that's incredibly wrong because we have a lot of different ways that memories are becoming a part of us. And the more we can engage our senses and the more we can actually actively engage with our senses while we're forming the memories, the more powerful that memory is going to be, the easier it's going to be to remember, the more vivid it's going to be, and the easier it's going to be to recall. So for instance, we've known for a very long time and you know, writers have written about it, everyone, even people who have no idea who Marcel Proust is, know what Proust's Madeleine is, you know that smell is an incredibly powerful way to evoke memory. One of the reasons is that it's actually connected to the emotional part of the brain. There's um, a direct connection there in a way that there isn't for other senses. And so knowing that, you know, if you're actually trying to remember something, it has, it doesn't have to be about food. It doesn't have to have anything to do with smell as such, but try to remember what the smells were at the moment. So like, you know, going back to you're studying for a test or you're trying to remember something, you're going to give a really important presentation at work, um, and but you need to memorize it. And so you're really trying to kind of remember what's going on. Well, maybe you're doing it at a cafe, you know, breathe in, try to figure out, you know, what are, what are the smells around here? Try to associate with a different sense. Hey, if you can associate it with the smell of coffee, awesome, because there's probably going to be coffee at your meeting. Try to get the exact same blend to get the stuff going in your mind. Listen, you know, what's the music playing in the background? Do you have any other associations with this music? I'm sure you've experienced this feeling where suddenly a song comes on the radio that is from, you know, the summer you were 13 years old, and all of a sudden you have all of these memories coming back that you didn't consciously try to remember. That's huge. And why don't we use that actually to our advantage, knowing that? So listen and actually try to associate the sounds with it. Obviously, we look all the time. So that's something that we'll do probably anyway. But if you do it more consciously, and if you actually try to notice the colors and actually really try to look in an mo- almost meditative way, that will help you. I will often remember things because I can remember exactly, you know, where it was on the page, on the table, you know, what I was doing. And when I can actually picture it in my mind, it helps me retrieve that information. Use the sense of touch, use, you know, your posture, where are you sitting? What are you feeling? You know, what are kind of the textures around you? Actually just fully engage with the moment and then try to use those senses as ways to make the memory 
more tangible, bigger, more three-dimensional, even if it's something really stupid like memorizing, you know, what I'm going to say on the slide of a really boring PowerPoint, it can make it much easier for you to then know exactly what you're saying. And it will be more interesting because you will have spent the time actually truly encoding it into your brain as opposed to just trying to rote memorize it. And I think we really underuse that sensory approach. That said, it's actually, this takes time. So I'm not recommending doing this at every moment of every day for every memory. That's going to be overwhelming. So you have to pick and choose. You have to be, you have to be kind of mindful. You have to be picky and you have to figure out what's actually worth remembering. What do I want to spend the energy on encoding and go from there? We're going to throw some resources in the show notes for listeners who want to dig more into those strategies as well, because these techniques are so powerful. If you get into the visual memory techniques that you can use to encode things, you know, I mean, I still remember numbers that I've encoded using visual yeah. methods like six months ago that I've never thought about. And if I think about the kind of mental, you know, the mind, like the mental image, mm-hmm. uh, the memory palace that I created for it, it's amazing. But I don't, sure. I want to, there's so much more I want to talk about. And so I want to kind of change gears completely. And, you know, the thing that we haven't even gotten into yet, which is, which is, truly fascinating to me is that you started out as, you know, as a psychology PhD, a writer, all this stuff. And yet now you sort of find yourself and, and correct me if I'm sort of mischaracterizing this, but you, you're now a professional poker player. Is that correct? Um, that is correct. And it is in service of writing. So I, um, my next book is going to be kind of more memoristic about my journey into the world of professional poker. And I, took up poker for this book. And I ended up, I didn't know that, you know, if I was going to be good, if I was going to enjoy it, I didn't know anything about poker. And it not only drew me in, but um, it ended up that I was able to do well in it. And so right now, um, the book ended up getting pushed back a little bit. Um, And yes, I'm playing full time. I think that's amazing. And I want to dig into a number of kind of pieces of that story you know, how did you sort of what what kind of drew you into the game of poker as somebody who studied, you know, thinking and psychology and human behavior and decision making? Once you kind of got in and started playing, what really drew you into it and made you more fascinated with it? I when I was in grad school, my main focus was on decision making under conditions of risk and uncertainty and under hot or emotional conditions. So my advisor is Walter Michel, who um, created in the 1960s, the famous marshmallow test of self-control. And so I was interested in self-control and in kind of how all of these things interact in um, environments where we don't have a lot of information, where there's a lot of uncertainty and where we're really stressed, where we're feeling under a lot of emotional pressure. And anyone who studies those sorts of things will find very quickly that while human beings are incredibly smart and normally are very good at making decisions in some environments, they that breaks down a lot when it comes to uncertainty, when it comes to kind of probabilistic thinking, when it comes to emotional decisions. Um, And right away, you start seeing biases, you start seeing people kind of go wrong and start making mistakes. Um, Daniel Kahneman, uh, who won a Nobel Prize for this work, was kind of the, the first one to really pub- uh, publicize it, which is you know, basically how our minds go wrong, all of the different biases and heuristics that we use in making decisions. And that's what you, that's what you see over and over and over. What you don't see nearly as much is, okay, well, how in the world do I correct this? You know, I... Normally I'm right, and a lot of times these biases are there for a reason and they serve us well. But you know, in these uncertain situations, when I'm emotional, you know, when when these biases really kick into high gear, how do I actually how do I get over that? And the answer is like it's it's really, really difficult. You can you can teach people all about these biases and they still have them and they still make these mistakes. So what I realized when I got into poker was that poker is actually a way to teach your mind to think in the right ways. And you do it over and over in a controlled environment through experience, which actually is incredibly helpful for actually teaching your mind to think in that way. So I think, you know, poker players understand probability in a way that 
most people don't. Um, they understand variance in a way that most people don't. They understand uncertainty and risk in a way that most people don't. And so it's a very interesting kind of confluence of ideas where, you know, on the one side, I've studied all of these biases. And so I have a deep understanding of what's going wrong. And then now I have this laboratory, if you will, to explore all of them and to kind of go deeper into my own brain and see what I can learn um, from a game that actually tackles them if you want to be good at it head on. I couldn't agree more. And, and that's why I, I love the game of poker so much. It's just such a fascinating, I think that the term laboratory is great. It's such a fascinating laboratory for teaching yourself not only these kind of really important mathematical and, you know, mathematical concepts, decision-making concepts, and and really a huge array of kind of emotional concepts as well that are really important to thriving and succeeding at anything that you do in life. For sure. For sure. I, and, you know, it's, it's one of these things that, so you, you've been a poker player for a while, but I'm someone who totally came from the outside. And so for me, you know, it just kind of hit me over the head all of, all of a sudden. And I think that that, is part of the fascination because I had no idea what I was getting into. And I'm like, oh my God, wow, this is so much better than I ever thought it could be. It teaches me so much about myself and about my own shortcomings, things that I didn't know existed. And it's one of these games that is infinitely complex. So it's not like suddenly you're like, okay, I understand poker. I understand statistics. I understand this. Um, I'm done. It keeps evolving and changing because you are playing people, you are playing situations. And so you're playing human dynamics and those keep evolving. And as people's strategy evolves, your strategy has to evolve. And so as a metaphor for life, it basically doesn't get any better than that. So you touched on this a second ago, but you know, as somebody who's a longtime poker player, uh, obviously, and I'm sure you get this question all the time, but you know, it's it's amazing to see someone who I think what two three years ago you never played poker and now you've yep. become a professional. What enabled you? You know, we talked earlier about kind of uh, kind of dabbled into this idea of mastery. What enabled you to excel and ex- you know so rapidly? in the game of poker? Well, I think it's a, it's a lot of things. First, I was incredibly lucky that I was able to gain access to some of the best players in the world. So my, my coach and mentor is Eric Seidel, who I think is one of the best players of all time, um, if not the best player of all time. If you look at historically, the fact that he's been winning and kind of at the top of the game since the 1980s, um, no one else has been able to replicate that. Um, so So having... A mentor who is such a force in the game is crucial because you can learn from that. You can really absorb it. And I'm someone who definitely loves to learn. So I'm very happy. You know, this is, I've, I've been a writer my whole life and I, well, my whole professional life. And I, um, you know, I'm very comfortable saying, I have no idea what's going on. Teach me, help me. And so I love learning from people who, who are very, very good. And so I was very lucky that he was involved and that he introduced me to some other incredible poker players who've been incredibly helpful along the way. So that's, that's one of the things. But the other part um, is that I do love learning and I'm willing to study and to put in massive hours. And so sometimes when people ask me kind of what I do, they think they don't really believe it. And they say, oh, well, you know, or even if they believe it, they're like, oh, but that's crazy. Like, really teach, you know, tell me how to, how to be, how to be good without having to do this. So basically, you know, I'm, I'm studying and working like nine, 10 hours a day, every single day. I fully immerse myself in the world of poker. So when I'm not playing, I'm either reading or analyzing hands or watching streams, pausing them, taking notes, trying to figure out people's strategy, trying to talk to people about strategies So I'm always doing something to work on my game. And I think that a lot of people don't really want to do that. They want to play poker because they see it as, quote unquote, easy. Um, And I think it's the polar opposite of that. It's a very, very hard way to make a living. And good poker players understand that. And, you know, there's, there's no easy money. And so for me, it's just been a fully immersive full-time job um, of learning and constantly trying to improve. And I think being willing, I think you always have to be willing 
to put in the hours and to realize that there are no shortcuts ever. So you know, it's the same of writing when people ask me, oh, you know, like I want to I want to get published in The New Yorker, too. How, how do I do that? I say, well, you know, I'd been writing full time for over 10 years before I got my per- first piece published in The New Yorker. And they're like, oh, but I don't want to do that. I'm like, well, I'm sorry, there's there, there's no magic bullet. You know, that's that's what you have to do. And that's not the answer a lot of people want to hear. It's such an important point and a theme that comes up again and again on on the show as well. And there's, you know, even coming back to this kind of the book Mastery by Robert Greene, like he has a quote in that book that's if you're I'm sort of paraphrasing it, but it's basically if you're looking for a shortcut, then you are unsuited for the pursuit of mastery. Yes, I think that's a very good way of putting it. I have nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I think also this idea of of kind of, uh, you know, as what I would call sort of beginner's mind, right, which is this notion of setting your ego aside, being willing to learn, being willing to ask what, you know, might be sort of dumb or embarrassing questions, kind of putting yourself out there and just saying, hey, I don't know. And I just want to learn. It's I think so many people get kind of tripped up on the the ego side of it and never really fully embrace that, which is such a core component of learning. For sure, for sure. And I think actually in poker, that's more true than it is in a lot of other places because poker is such an ego-driven boys club. I mean, there are hardly any women in it in any given tournament. If it's kind of a big, well-known tournament, it'll be about 3% of the field if you're lucky. So it's not a lot at all. And that's actually up. So before it used to be, you know, sometimes it would be 0% of the field. And when you have so much kind of male ego, when you have so much testosterone, when it's always been kind of a, a boys club in those environments, it can be very difficult to put aside kind of that, that ego to realize, okay, you know, there are lots of people who are much better than I am. And to be fair, I think the best these days, the best male poker players are absolutely willing to do that and are among, you know, the smartest, most studious people I've ever met. They, you know, they work their asses off and they work hard and they're working with, you know, they're working with lots of software. They're, you know, they're really, really trying to understand the game at an incredibly deep level. And I think that's amazing. So what would be kind of one piece of homework or sort of actionable advice that you would give to listeners who want to kind of concretely implement some of the ideas and concepts that we've talked about today? The one concrete piece of advice that I would say, and this is the the one habit that we've already talked about that I've changed, but I actually think that it's the single most important thing that you can do is have a 10 minute a day meditation. Everyone has 10 minutes. No, I don't care how busy you are. Um, I don't care how much you have going on. You have 10 minutes because it doesn't actually matter what is going on around you. That's the beauty of this. It can be incredibly loud and cacophonous. You could be, you know, a mother or a father with like five kids running around. Um, As long as there's someone else keeping an eye on them for the 10 minutes that you have your eyes closed, that they're not going to kill themselves. You know, you don't care that all of these things are happening. It's because the point is to kind of admit all of the distractions that are happening and then to let go of them. And so it's actually, it's not like you need to sit in a quiet place. It's not like you need to, you know, lie down. You can be standing, you can be sitting, you can be anywhere. It's just this ability to, to do a 10 minute exercise where you just focus on your breath or whatever kind of meditation you want to do. I I just happen to do mindfulness meditation and to really train your brain to acknowledge distractions, let them go and go back to the moment and to force yourself to do it for the full amount of time. So you can set a timer on your phone. There are lots of apps that you can use. And I think that it's something that can be really difficult at first, but if you can actually implement that one habit, it can really be life-changing in your ability to concentrate, to make good decisions, to pay attention. And for listeners who want to dig in, learn more, find you and your work online, what's the best place for them to do that? I am on Twitter at mkonnikova, where I tweet a lot of stuff. I'm on Instagram at girl named Maria, except girl doesn't have an I in it because I was late to Instagram and there's already a girl named Maria with an I in it. So I'm a misspelled girl named Maria. I have a website, mariakonnikova.com that I unfortunately don't update nearly as often as I should. 
And I have Facebook um, at Maria Konnikova, but I also don't love Facebook. So I'm not on there as much as I am on the other platforms. Well, Maria, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your incredible journey and all of the wisdom that's come along with it. It's been, uh, it's been great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.